so everybody, welcome to the state update slash podcast that shall be named. We haven't decided yet, but we've kind of revamped everything. We want to make this great for everybody to listen to and kind of learn from what's kind of happening around the states as it relates to school choice, education, freedom, all the above. So welcome. I'll start off by saying a typical dad joke, which is when does a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes apparent. I like that one a lot. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's go around the horn here real quick and I'll let you guys introduce yourself. We'll start with the charmer from the South. My name is Nathan Sanders. I hail from the great state, state voted most likely to succeed by Ed Choice in 2024, the state of Louisiana. And as Joey said, I'm from the South. So most of the states that I work with are in the Southeast, pretty much the big chunk of the Southeast. So get to visit with lots of Southern folks. Great. And we'll start with Southwest, Midwest, maybe South. Catherine. Yes, I'm a mixture of everything. Catherine Manal from Austin, Texas. I work in a couple of fun states. I go from Washington all the way down to Texas, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Lovely. And I actually don't know, Caitlin, what we would call Oklahoma either. We've been mm -hmm. named a lot of different things as well, but. I call it Mid-South, Mid-Southwest. I like that. My name is Caitlin Lee. I live in Oklahoma City. I kind of cover the kind of central region of the U.S. between Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Nebraska, Kansas, Little Midwest and Iowa and Illinois. Lovely. We'll have our uh, New England elite next. My name is Ed Tarnowski. I am from Rhode Island originally, born and raised and went to college. I went to go live in Indianapolis for two years, a wonderful two years where Ed Choice is based, and I have since relocated to Washington, D.C. Um, I'm continuing my work at Ed Choice, as well as doing some other work I do as well. So it's an exciting time. But yeah, I cover the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and Virginia. Lovely. And we'll have our all-star addition to the team, and that is our legal guru. Yes, so my name is Kevin Kolar. I grew up most of my life in Ohio, living in New Orleans right now. And being on the legal side of things, making sure the bills and everything that the PNA team, policy advocacy team brings about are very ideal and, and fit within the constitution of each of the states. So that's my yes. role. A legal touch with a little bit of king cake. I love it. We're working on Kevin's pronunciation of New Orleans. He's oh. new, so it's a work in progress. Yeah, work in progress. Work yeah. in progress. All right. Well, let's just jump into it. A lot of state sessions started in January. We had even more start in February, and the last couple of states, I think, will uh, start in March. Just for everyone's awareness, this is what's kind of considered an off year for some states, so they don't even have session. They only do every other year, like Texas, Montana, North Dakota. I think there's a few more out there. And then some states will do a policy session one year and then a budget session the next Arkansas, Wyoming, there's a few states out there like that. And then the rest do typical session every year where they do policy budgets, all the above. So as we are in February now, most state sessions have started. So with that, we've had a lot of school choice bills being filed. Ed, what are kind of the numbers where we're at right now with that? Yeah, so as of Friday, we are currently tracking 46 bills in 20 states. So far, about 76% of those bills are related to education savings accounts. So ESA is going into the new year, continue to be king. 
overall the overwhelming amount of legislation related to school choice is ESA related. Yeah, and just for if if you know this off of hand, what did we end up with last year? I don't have the exact numbers, but on the top of my head, it was about 120 bills in, I, I believe, 43 states to give estimates. And that was, a, I mean, a record amount of school choice legislation last year that we saw introduced. Pretty amazing. Of course, none of those bills became law, but the fact that we're seeing this much legislation being introduced, this was interest in lawmakers putting forth great legislation across the country, raising awareness, bringing their colleagues into the issue, you know teaching them more about what school choice is, what it means, what the data is. We love to see it in every state. We saw a lot of that in Tennessee because Governor Sanders led the way in Arkansas. And then last November, she was kind enough to fly out and do a conference with Governor Bill Lee when he announced his push this cycle for school choice in Tennessee. So we're watching that debate heat up, but it's nice to see governors working across the state lines to help each other have improved legislation pass. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Speaking of that, it's helpful to have a strong governor, it seems. In a state like Arkansas, where it was so tough to get the smallest type of choice programs across, Governor Huckabee Sanders comes in, makes it her top priority, and then all of a sudden you have co-sponsors on a universal bill of members who have never voted for any sort of choice program, much less a universal bill. I know, Nathan, we have that in uh, Louisiana now with your new governor. Yeah, Louisiana governor, Governor Landry, basically, as soon as he was elected, said ESA's education freedom will be number one priority in the regular session. And they've been very consistent with that. Uh, We've been working with the governor's office on that in terms of what the bill should look like and things of that nature. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, the governor brought it to the forefront of legislators, brand new legislators and legislators who are already there who had never really, really been involved before. So it's really fun to see. Additionally, in Alabama, I've been spending a lot of time in Alabama the last few weeks because they also have a universal bill there that the governor has made her number one priority, Governor Ivey. And it's interesting to see the conversations there, walking around the halls, talking to legislators who seem fairly, I guess, neutral in better terms to put it when it comes to like an education savings account. Previously, probably not very supportive. I won't name any names. But now that the governor is pushing this, they're like, you know what? We're signed on. We're going to go for it. So it's encouraging to see just how much good leadership has to play into all this. Yeah, well, case in point, Catherine, you mentioned Governor Lee, who's been there a while, right? I think he's in his second term. He decided, he's always been a choice supporter. I just want to say that up front. But he decided this year to make it a priority, and it's making a difference, right? It is. It is making a difference. And you're seeing so much pressure put on these legislatures, not just from a strong gubernatorial standpoint, but their neighbors are passing these programs. They're successful, and families want them. So if you look at Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, they're all comparing notes saying, we want what Louisiana has. We want what Arkansas has. It's very interesting. It also helps put some pressure here on Texas where we're gearing up for a fight next year, but it's nice to point to surrounding states to say, here, they have successful programs going. Let's get this done in your legislature too. And an influential governor truly can make a difference. We saw in Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds got it done last year, um, universal in the first couple weeks of session. The year before, she had a few members who uh, weren't going the way of school choice. She decided to primary them with school choice, the focus of the campaign, with success in those primaries, passing the next two weeks of session in the next year. It seems like Governor Abbott, and I, I won't go into this, I know Catherine will go more into the details, but it looks like Governor Abbott is going the Kim Reynolds route. It'll be interesting to watch this year. But yeah, no, it's an exciting time for school choice, and we're really seeing it become a powerful force in elections across the country. 
And talking yeah. about the contrast for that, I was going to say, you know, obviously Governor Stitt led the way a little bit in Oklahoma last year and has continued to lead the way this year in reforming and making the parental choice tax credit the best it can be. But to contrast that, I'm going to kind of pick on someone, and that's Governor Gordon in Wyoming, where we have a ton of legislative support from both the House and the Senate. The biggest issue in the legislature is that they can't seem to all agree on what they want. And I really wish that Governor Gordon would step up to the plate here and lead the way to help unify them, because I think that if they had that strong leadership voice, it would make a huge difference in the legislature. And we've seen two years in a row now where they've started bickering internally and not potentially, we'll see this year. I'm skeptical anything will occur. I just wish he'd step up to the plate. And his neighbor to the north in Montana did the same thing last year, brought a significant amount of choice to Montana. So he's now being surrounded. Yeah, that's a great point. There are reverse scenarios of where you have a lot of support in the legislature, but just a little bit of leadership is needed from the top, but it's not there. So hopefully that turns around. But yeah, to your point, Ed, Governor Reynolds really was kind of the first governor on choice to kind of stick her neck out there and kind of get involved directly with members by getting involved in primaries and kind of, you know, taking strong leadership, so to speak. But previous to that, we had governors who really fought for choice Not necessarily universal, because that's where the country, you know, they weren't there just yet. But Mitch Daniels in Indiana, then Governor Ducey in uh, Arizona, strong governors who really took the lead on choice. And because of them, I think we are where we are now. I can't remember who mentioned it, but also, I think it was Catherine, maybe. The South really has kicked up the dust on choice, I think, in part because they are now being surrounded by Arkansas, Oklahoma, Florida, both Carolinas, West Virginia. I think they feel pressure to do something in choice because if parents have options in other states, why should we not have choices in ours? And in a very mobile society where people can basically move where they want and maybe are looking to make a change and move, why not move to a state where your kid has a customizable education opportunity? I mean, I think it's great. So anyway, speaking of the South, Nathan, you lucked out this year. You drew the lucky card and got the most states doing the most things. So what is kind of happening in this deep South of feeling pressure to do something. Yeah, so I'll start with Alabama just because one, I've been there a good bit recently, but also things are starting to move positively. So it's interesting to talk about Alabama because if you looked at Alabama a year ago, talking about the ESA, you know, we had this Price Act bill and, you know, basically anyone you spoke with in Alabama, advocate, legislator, you name it, basically said this thing is DOA. Choice is not happening in Alabama anytime soon, especially not universal choice. We don't want it. We're not going to do it. And it died in committee. That was that. And then basically last summer going into the fall, you know, we started hearing all these things about there may be some grounds for universal choice or maybe some grounds for just an expansive bill. We will see. And then Governor Ivey and her office start blasting out universal choice is going to be one of our number one priorities. You know, we're going to work on this piece of legislation and it blossomed into, as I was mentioned earlier, basically her number one priority in the state of the state. She mentioned a few remarks about education freedom, saying it was going to be her number one priority. And there are two things going on in the state of Alabama in the state house right now. And that's gambling, which, of course, we won't get into and school choice. And that's pretty much it. That's pretty much what everyone's talking about, no matter if you're for or against any of those. You go talk to the legislator. They don't know you from Adam. They're going to talk to you about gambling and or school choice. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of legislators who didn't really care about school choice before. Maybe they were even against it. But now they're like, 
it's going to happen. We're signing on because this is what the governor wants. This is what the people want. This is what the constituents want, which is true uh, as our polling shows. And so very encouraging to see there was a hearing, just a public hearing in the Senate this week, which I testified in and just kind of went over some of the national data that we have in our one, two, threes. It talks about you know, the academic success of choice, participant attainment, some of the public side. The chairman of that committee, it was the Senate Finance and Taxation on Education. The chairman of that committee is actually the author of the Senate bill, Senator Orr. And so they're rolling with this thing. They're taking in all of the help that they can get. They're taking in all the suggestions that they can get. And they want to make this a solid, expansive bill. Governor Ivey has been quoted with saying she wants to, this to be one of the most expansive bills, not even in the South, but nationwide. And so Things are moving along. Things are optimistic there. And I'm excited for conversations ahead. Yeah, another example of leadership. Let's talk about the bill a little bit, though, because I think there's some confusion out there. And legislators love to do this, which, you know, I don't really blame them. You have to think about just the politics of what we would say is under the dome and the politics outside of the dome. So what works in the building when you're trying to maneuver and strategize of how to get something passed? versus what the talking points are and what you say in front of the camera for the general public. But they're calling it a refundable tax credit, which is great. But in functionality, it looks a lot like an ESA. Is that right? I mean, it's uh, money going into an account that then they can then choose from a few options. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I like Caitlin's unofficial category, which is the flexible education savings account or something of that sort. Spending account. Because there's There's not a savings element to it. Yeah, there's not a savings element, but it is essentially just a scholarship funded by a, a tax credit that the parents have access to that they can spend on a variety of different things. The uses yeah. that the bill allows are things like your traditional tuition fees, but it does expand out to where you're able to kind of pay for some extracurricular things, tutoring, online courses, things of that nature. So it does have a fairly expansive list of, of uses that parents are able to access. And so it is an interesting way to brand it, but at the end of the day, parents will be able to have access to the money and they'll have lots of uses to spend on their kids. Hey, we like innovation here at EdChoice, so we're all for it. No, I think that's great. One thing I do want to talk about that might be a little bit of a dicey issue, but hey, who cares, is Georgia. So Georgia is a state that had a, I think what started off as a universal bill when it was first introduced and then got changed before it started getting voted on to a much more focused and specific ESA. And there's obviously a lot of politics around that, just what people are comfortable with, what they're not. But talk to us about Georgia, what's happening there right now. Yeah, so Georgia finished up last session, amended their universal ESA to essentially changing eligibility to failing schools, the bottom quartile performing schools, public schools in the state of Georgia. And so they needed, I think, six votes in the session in the House last year there were 16 Republicans, frankly, who voted against it. And so the strategy, there was a broad strategy going into this session from folks like us, our friends at Yes Every Kid, saying, let's push for universal choice. Like, we didn't get the votes last year. We need these legislators to be able to attach onto something that they can tell their constituents, like, hey, this bill has changed. The polling shows that universal is more palatable and wanted by constituents. There was recent polling done by our friends at Yes Every Kid that showed these things, especially in swing districts. And so that was the strategy broadly going in from folks like us saying, let's push for universal. We didn't get the votes we needed last year, but you know there was a few elements that we needed for this. And that was frankly leadership and leadership in Georgia kind of, I know that they battled this hard. They went back and forth in their minds. They went back and forth in conversations with folks on the ground, national works like us. And it was a really hard decision, but 
they ultimately decided to kind of stick with the bill as is the language that we spoke of about focus on targeting schools eligibility wise and so that's kind of been their strategy trying to get those last few votes and you know we'll see what happens a lot can happen between now and when this bill starts to be heard because it's still just filed nothing's really moved yet but there's still a push from folks like us folks like our friends at yes every kid some other folks on the ground who want to push for universal because they see this as the right way to go they don't want to sort of i guess give in or default to you know a weaker bill when you can push for universal and really have the chance to serve every kid in georgia and so we'll see what happens i'm not extremely optimistic but that being said you never know what could happen true and you know another example of where leadership i think could really come in handy where governor kemp who's a fairly popular governor has been very even keeled and practical as a as a conservative governor i think could really make the difference so we certainly hope and encourage that he'll get involved. He had a great, I think, state of the state speech where he mentioned education freedom and parental rights and yeah. school choice. So we'll remain optimistic, but we're realists here at Ed Choice, so we get that too. Catherine, what about Tennessee? We talked about Governor Lee making this a priority. It seems like uh, a lot of those in the legislature seem to be very open to this and, and optimistic, but what's kind of happening in Tennessee right now? Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of optimism. We're just trying to get uh, solid versions of the bill. So we know that the governor's office is working on a version of the bill along with a version in the House and one in the Senate. And so there's been a lot of conversations in backrooms trying to hammer out what does accountability look like? What does the amount of the ESA look like? But we do expect to see an ESA bill moving I expect it to move fairly easily through the Senate. The House could be more of a challenging conversation. But we're seeing a lot of optimism where I think five, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen this type of movement. So it's very exciting. They have an existing ESA program, and they have many parents who are very satisfied with that program and excited about it. So it's nice to have built-in parents to come in and talk about their experience with this program and kind of shed light on how it's helped them directly, but how it could help the rest of Tennessee by empowering parents to get to choose where their kids go to school. So it's nice to have yeah. a piece of parents already involved, experienced with the program to just further highlight it and hopefully expand it out. Yeah, and that's, that's an example where many states, if they were going to do choice, they started off kind of small. So I think in Tennessee, right, it was the two counties that were the most populous, and I think they maybe expanded it to a third last year or the year before. So I'm glad to see that they started off small, but realized like every kid in the state should be eligible for this kind of opportunity. It's been very popular. So Commissioner Reynolds yesterday testified in the Senate Education Committee, and she talked about how the 2024-2025 application period for the existing ESA programs already opened up. In the first week, they had 1,200 families apply for a scholarship. So that's very exciting. It shows demand. It shows interest. It's hopefully a way to further expand this program to all the counties in the state. Yeah, no, that's great. So Louisiana, I often tell folks when they ask me what's going to happen in the states when it comes to choice, who's next? I feel very confident. I don't want to jinx anything, knock on wood. I don't think there's any wood in here, but I'd say Louisiana is pretty much guaranteed. And that's because of what we talked about, Nathan, with Governor Landry coming in, making it a top priority. Louisiana is a state that's had some interesting history with choice, you know, with charter schools and different things. But it looks like now they're, they're really going to go for the whole enchilada, so to speak, and go for uh, universal yeah. ESA. You know, Louisiana is so interesting just because, you know, we've sort of been, I say we, I mean, folks who've been working on this issue longer than I've really even been alive, like, 
this issue has been sort of planted and, and worked on for years, you know, like even looking back to Governor Jindal in 2008 with the scholarship program, that was sort of a pioneer program that led the way for other states to expand out their school choice. But, you know, folks, advocates and, and legislators have been working on this for years and years and years. And really, we've had, you know, we've had a few legislative barriers over the last few years. But the biggest barrier has been the executive. You know, the governor's office, the former governor just wasn't huge on choice. He never wanted to expand out options. He never, you know, to give him credit where credit's due, he never pulled you know, in Illinois, Pritzker, and try to kill anything or, or stop any programs from existing and kids having options. But he never was into expanding. He never was into creating new programs for kids. And so it's really just been sort of loading for eight years with advocates and legislators and parents working relentlessly to expand options. And they bring bills every year and they testify every year and they whip legislators every year. And so finally now, with Governor Landry coming in, who is a huge advocate for choice for education freedom, making it a priority, it just seems like everything's falling into place, right? The harvest is ready. And so, you know, like you said, Joey, people ask all the time, how's Louisiana? And I can't, it's not like I'm lying to them. I just tell them like, everything's great. Like everything's going well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we'll see what happens. The legislature, we have a super majority of supporters in both chambers, bipartisan. You know, the Department of Education is extremely compliant. The superintendent is vocally supportive of ESAs. He's been heavily involved in the process this whole time. The governor's office, of course, is supportive. So everything, all the pieces are there. You know, they're now, as the start of session gets, you know, we get ready for session. Everything's just got to kind of fall into place and get the wheels turning. So everything's looking good. The framework of the bill, or what, at least what's been discussed thus far, because we haven't started session. We're a late session start. But it's going to be a really solid, expansive bill, very competitive with Florida, very competitive with, God willing, Alabama. And so things are looking up. Things are looking good. No, that's great. I think everybody's looking forward to Louisiana getting it done and adding to the list of all families being eligible for, you know, educational opportunities. Yeah. And to Catherine's point, you know, when you guys were just talking about Tennessee and to my earlier point with Alabama, you know, years and years ago, the whole topic of competitiveness, especially in the South and definitely in other states was like tax reform, the race for comprehensive tax reform, getting rid of the income tax. That's been the discussion for years in Texas and Florida, Mississippi has a plan in place. Louisiana has a minor plan, but like all these Southern states, especially have like, it's been a race for comprehensive tax reform. And so I talk to legislators now around the South and I'll tell them like, now it's education freedom. Like now it's the race for universal education freedom. Florida has done it. Arkansas has done it. Oklahoma has done it. Carolina's like, when you talk about Alabama, when I'm talking to legislators, especially in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, I tell them like, you don't want to be left behind. You may have been left behind in tax reform. You don't want that to happen again. You got to get ahead of the crowd and you got to get out there and, and have a good bill serving students. And so I like to bring that up just because legislators love competition with other states. That's just like the nature of it. So that's yeah. to Catherine's point. Tennessee is another one I throw in there all the time. Like, look, Tennessee, maybe you'll get it done this year, you know, especially in Georgia, because they always compete with Tennessee and Alabama. The SEC is uh, the conference, right? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding, but kidding. So, yeah, lots of competition in the South, obviously. But I think that's the beauty of our republic is that states can compete and do their own thing how they want to, when they want to. But competition is always great as our founder, Milton Friedman, would say. Ed, I know the Northeast is kind of a tough area when it comes to free market principles and wanting uh, you know, people to have complete freedom and choice. But when it comes to school choice, there is a shining bright example that is New Hampshire that we listed as the most well-run choice program for multiple reasons. But it seems like we might get a big expansion up there. What's happening in New Hampshire? A well-run and a well-deserved award. New Hampshire yeah. is, I would argue, the best school choice coalition in the country. 
they are a leading example and the implementation has been amazing. But yeah, up in New Hampshire, there's some exciting news that just came out of New Hampshire. Last week, we just saw the passage of an expansion to the state's education freedom account program. Now, this is a big deal. This was not a sure deal by any means. For those of you who don't know, New Hampshire's House of Representatives, they have 400 representatives, 400 seats. It is a razor thin Republican majority. And generally speaking, Democrats are often lockstep and being opposed to school choice in New Hampshire with some exceptions. And with so many members being there, it literally matters when and who is going to the bathroom, at what time, if they're missing votes, and who's showing up for the day. It's so uh, this was not a true deal, and we saw a passage of a significant expansion to the state's EFA program. So last year, they passed an expansion moving up the eligibility from 300 to 350% of the federal poverty line. This expansion passed in the House, moves it to 500% of the federal poverty line. That's a huge expansion. In most states, that would be almost universal. New Hampshire, it's about, given their incomes, um, it's about 69 to 70% of the state to be eligible um, if this gets to the Senate. And there's uh, usually New Hampshire, once it passes, it has to go back to a different committee. Uh, this time, they surpass that completely. So this goes right to the Senate. It's a huge victory. If the Senate is able to pass this, it goes right to the governor. And we're certain the governor would sign it. The governor has been a huge supporter of choice in New Hampshire, proudly so. I have no doubt that he would sign this bill if the Senate sends it to his desk. So that's all to the Senate now. The hope is that if there's no amendments, Again, it doesn't have to go back to the house, it goes right to the governor. We're watching that super closely. I just want to say real quick, sure. just to highlight the significance of this, because you said 500% would be around 70% of kids eligible. Right now, it's only like, what, 33%, give or take? Uh, so it started at about a third. After the expansion last year, it's moved up to the 40s. This would bring it to about more than two-thirds. So we've gone from a third, and this expansion passes, to more than two-thirds of the state. Yeah. this program. That's a huge deal. And Kate Baker up in New Hampshire, she runs Children's Scholarship Fund. Again, for those who don't know, New Hampshire runs this program in a unique fashion. Independent as New Hampshire is, proudly, they run their program through a third-party independent organization rather than through a state agency. And Kate Baker, that's why, that's what we were talking about earlier when we were saying how they won that award. Also a nonprofit organization as well, Yes, right? nonprofit, independent organization called Children's Scholarship Fund New Hampshire. And I've spoken to Kate many times about the income limit and what it would mean to raise the income limit. And when we raised it last year, she had applications ready to go that were just over that 300% line. And again, if you're making a dollar more, what that line is, then you don't qualify. Think about it. Yeah. If you're missing it by a dollar, but there's really virtually no difference between you and someone making a dollar less than you and what you can afford. So this is a huge deal. The income limits uh, leaves a lot of people behind that are right in that line. So raising it up to 500 is excellent yeah. news. if they're able to accomplish it. It makes a huge difference for a ton of families. Well, to give a real life example of what you say, if somebody earns one more dollar, they disqualify. I was very close friends with a family in church growing up. The dad was a ER doctor. The mom stayed at home with their seven girls. And he was telling me just the other day when we were talking about choice in states, that if he had had the opportunity to have help, he would have been a better dad because he had to take extra shifts as an ER doctor and work odd hours just to pay for his seven girls to go to a private school where they thrived and was able to have the best learning environment. So there are examples like that where, you know, who are the arbiters of who makes how much and how, you know, if it's too much versus too little, things like that. You know, when you have a family 
who some would consider is pretty well off. I mean, I don't know how much ER doctors make, but I'm sure it's a lot, but not enough for him to sacrifice time with his family so he could work extra shifts just to pay for their tuition. So there are examples like that all over the country, even much more obviously extreme examples of single mothers like mine, who's, you know, my grandparents had to come out of retirement and work part-time jobs to send me to a private school. So there's lots of different examples out there, which is why one of the reasons why every kid should be eligible not to mention to have the best kind of market out there for educational services and, and providers. But hopefully we'll have a, uh, a policy podcast center podcast where we can talk about some of those things and why you know certain policies are better than others. Stay tuned for that, but we'll keep marching along. I'll say for Idaho, which is a state that I cover, they also have a refundable tax credit, very similar to what Oklahoma did. Every kid is eligible, but it has a $50 million cap, $40, $50 million cap. So it starts small, but we love the fact that every kid is eligible. So it's, it's basically first come, first serve. I think they might have a little bit of a priority towards lower income. But again, when you're talking about politics and what can come across, the governor has not been a great supporter of school choice, but this is a way that they could see that they could get support and help families and expand kind of the funding cap from there, but still keeping it from the very get-go, even with a low funding cap, every kid is eligible, which I think is, is good. That hearing, I think, is scheduled for next Thursday in the House to hear their bill. Wyoming is a state that has a very short budget session, which makes things very unique. So, Caitlin, I'll kind of let you talk about what's, what's been happening in Wyoming. They started this week, right, or was it last week? This week was their first week in session, and they budget on a biennial basis, so it's definitely something that they have to make policy decisions very quickly, and they have a very high threshold in order to consider anything policy-based during a budget year. They'll be done March 14th, 15th, something along in there, so they're only there about six weeks, and they move very, very quickly. So this week, we've seen three school choice bills so far. One of them's already got stuck in the speaker's drawer, same fate as last year, bill by Representative Ocean Andrew. Pretty much the same bill from last year. He did a little bit of cleanup on that bill just to kind of update it with some lessons learned from the other states that implemented school choice over the last year or two. And then the bill that everyone thought was the best chance was a bill that was put forth by the speaker and adopted as an education bill, House Bill 19. And it failed to get the votes for introduction, which is a two-thirds required, two-thirds vote of all of those elected in the House or the House of Origin not just those present. And it missed it by one vote after a member unfortunately had to leave early. So unexpectedly. There are still two that are alive, one in the House and one in the Senate. The Senate bill, Senator Boner has that one. And it's pretty much the same bill, exact same bill as Ocean Andrews. However, it's DOA as soon as it gets to the House and we'll probably go in the speaker's drawer with all things that legislators seems to buy. Our only hope at this point is House Bill 166 by King Clauston. Representative Clauston has been a vocal pessimist about school choice, I'll say. He has concerns. He sees that there's a need. He sees that it could work, but he just wants it done very particularly and done right. And I told him, I was like, hey, I'm right there with you. I want it done right too. So we're on the same page that we want the right policy implemented. I don't know that we always see eye to eye on what that right policy is, but I will say the changes he's made when he's adjusted the speaker's bill have really been, I appreciate those. It expands eligibility quite a bit. Instead of just capping at 250% federal poverty level, it takes it all the way up to 400% and it varies the amount based upon that income. 
So it widens that a lot. Yeah. And so not to get too deep in the weeds on this, but basically tell us what the difference between basically what the speaker was introducing and what had been introduced last year that is still something that Representative Devotion and others are pushing. So universal versus what? Yeah. So just to kind of get in, I mean, it's essentially come down to Wyoming caucus versus freedom caucus, just to call it what it is. And the speaker is part of the Wyoming caucus and they're the ones kind of leading it this year. Last year with Ocean's Bill, it's more of a Freedom Caucus movement, which is full universal ESA, very wide use, and universal eligibility. That was last year. It's also what he filed again this year. So, and that's also what's currently sitting in the Senate, but has not been introduced yet. So, yeah. one of the other distinctions of this was the pre K element that I think you yes. mentioned, right? Yeah, the Freedom yeah. Caucus is pretty much against pre K being included. Not to say that every member of the Freedom Caucus would be, but that's kind of one of their big, I guess, issues with the the Speaker's Bill. bill. Yeah, their objections. So the Speaker's Bill would have allowed early childhood to apply for this for three and four-year-olds, whereas this kind of remixed version that we're calling, we're calling it the Speaker's Remix Bill, because we know he's still behind it. King Clauston, his is just for four-year-olds. So it's a little bit more limiting. I, I have less issue with that. The big issue is they still have a 30-70 split. So 30% of that $40 million appropriation would still be designated to go to early childhood, so the four-year-olds. So when you consider the fact that only four-year-olds can participate in this program versus K through 12, you're talking about 13 like classes of students versus one class of student or one age group, and you're disproportionately giving them funding and reserving it just for them. So I still think they have something to work yeah. out on that piece, but I think we'll get there. I think I accidentally skipped over Mississippi. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a strong movement for universal choice there as well. I know there's not official language, but Nathan, what's being talked about in Mississippi? So Mississippi is relative to some of its neighbors. It is moving a little bit slower, but the conversations are still happening. There'll be a bill filed, hopefully very soon in Mississippi to where a universal bill. And so the speaker, the brand new speaker, Jason White, basically came in and said, you know, he he wants to do an ESA. He wants to make it this a priority for him. And so there are some more legislative challenges in Mississippi. Frankly, the lieutenant governor is not a huge supporter of choice. I think that'll be a barrier because there are lots of senators who kind of follow his lead. The governor is a huge supporter. Governor Reeves is a huge supporter of choice, but just per the constitution, he doesn't have much power or influence within the legislature. That's more of the role of the lieutenant governor. So there's some challenges ahead. I think there's a, a role to play with continuing to show the popularity, one, that all these states around them, surrounding them, eventually they'll be an island. All these states around them are implementing or passing at universal school choice and frankly showing them that their constituents want it. Even in rural Mississippi, you know, even in Jackson, you know, the Luxie parents want this for their kids. They want options. And so continuing to push that message, continuing to have conversations with lawmakers there, because it is relatively new to a lot of lawmakers in Mississippi. They have their ESA program for special needs students already. So I think highlighting the successes of that and be able to expand on that. So all that to say, hopeful, but I think there's a lot more legislative barriers there in Mississippi. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the highlights for states that are really kind of moving in a significant direction with choice programs. Either they have filed legislation or will file. In later episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of, you know, what else is going on around the states? There's lots going on. This is, like I said, an off year. And so lots of states are kind of building up to next session and talking about what they might want their state to do in choice and what the program might look like. 
refundable tax credits are obviously not a new concept, but it is in the choice world, something that Oklahoma started and now a couple of other states are considering and even putting out there. So stay tuned for all of those. I do want to say really quickly, though, before we leave, we have all kind of seen a stepped up movement or push on accountability. Accountability is definitely different from transparency. Transparency is, you know, what does the program look like? How does it work? Where do the funds go? How can they be spent? That's all transparency. Accountability goes to basically testing and results and, you know, the funds go here, but is it the right way to use the funds and how are they being used in the home? That kind of a thing, which we at EdChoice have always pushed back on, not because we don't care about accountability, but what we say is parents are the ultimate accountability measure for their kids. It's really not up to the state or anybody else to determine what's the best for that child, but for their parents. Having said all that, we've seen kind of a, a renewed push, like I said, on accountability that looks different in different states, but I know it's being talked about and put in bills that now we're trying to have to have those conversations of the more regulation you put on the program, the less likely it is to succeed. Number one, just because if you're teaching to a test, it's really no different than the public school. Number two, if you put a lot of heavy regulations on a program, private schools don't want to participate. Vendors don't want to participate because it's a bunch of red tape and hoops they have to jump through and it's really not worth it to them. And quite frankly, people are scared of government overreach and I don't blame them. So let's talk about that for a little bit. I know Alabama has provisions in their new program. Let's talk about Oklahoma, who has already passed a refundable tax credit and now has bills in Oklahoma to talk about adding regulation on. So yeah, let's start with Oklahoma because I think it's not unique. I think it's unique in the fact that the program just passed last year. I think money is just now going out the door and we already have these bills to say, oh no, we've got to put regulation on it. So Caitlin, what's, you know, I think there's two particular bills out there to add a testing requirements, but talk about those. Yeah. So, I mean, the first money is just now starting to hit accounts or be sent out. The priority deadline just passed about 10 days ago, nine, 10 days ago, somewhere around in there. And parents are still in the process of being allowed to apply if they weren't in those two priority tiers. So you still have people entering the program. The program is just barely kicking off if you even consider it kicked off yet. And yet you have a bill in both the House and the Senate that would require testing for students participating in the program. The one in the Senate is concerning, of course. I'm less concerned about its progress going forward, however. It's also less egregious. So it requires that if a student is participating in the program and they go to a private school, the private school has to administer a test to them. And that's all it says. It doesn't have a clawback measure or anything like that. That's where we get a house bill where it's kids participating in the program at private schools or homeschooled, or as Oklahoma actually calls it, educated through other exceptions, educational exception. They would be required to take a state test at a state certified testing center, which those don't exist currently. So that's another kind of issue with this piece of legislation that's been filed. Most concerning with it is that if they do not take the test within 60, 90 days, they have to repay the funds. Mm -hmm. So they're clawing back the money if the kids don't take the test. So, I mean, again, not to get into nuances, I've kind of explained why testing isn't great. We're generally okay with national norm tests because then parents and schools have a plethora of options to choose from testing that they can do with their kids. 
but you know the fact that there's this kind of clawback measure of you've got to do this test and you've got to do it in this amount of time when in fact a public school kid in Oklahoma can opt out of the state test so really it's biased against choice and families who choose choice so it's very asinine it's very negative and it's it's unfortunate and obviously we will uh have conversations with folks just to say why we think that's not a good move. I was going to say, I think honestly that this legislation is coming from a misinformed and biased opinion that private schools aren't performing. And I think it's even more attempting to be an attack on homeschoolers in the case of the House bill, saying that they're not actually teaching their kids. There's no curriculum. How do we measure things? So I think it's truly an attack on the homeschool community and private schools because they don't believe they're keeping up with, you know, the state. The reality is, is Oklahoma's test scores are down at the bottom. So it wouldn't take much to keep up with the state. Um, You can pretty much (laughs) do the bare minimum and do better. So it will only make Oklahoma's public schools look worse if we start publishing testing data for all the private schools. I will stand behind that. So I really think they should just sit down and not bring this up. Yeah. And another thing, too, in Oklahoma that a lot of folks may not know is that to participate in the program on the provider side, which are private schools, they have to be accredited. And there is loose language on that to say kind of any accrediting body, as long as a private school is accredited, they can participate in the program. So there's already a level of accountability there that parents can choose from to say, you know, whether it's this accrediting body or that accrediting body the school has to be accredited. I mean, that was put in the language that has to be done, which is not the case in some other areas, because again, quite frankly, I think states like Arizona choose to say, again, parents are the ultimate accountability. If they want their kid to go to a school that's not accredited by some accrediting body, that's their choice. And that's kind of what we believe in. But Alabama, again, you know, it's another state where they're introducing legislation to have universal choice. They're worried about accountability, which is totally fair. But talk to us about what they've kind of presented in their bill, Nathan. Yeah, so Alabama, you know, plainly, they just, for their accreditation, they sort of just codify the agencies to accredit the schools in Alabama. And so a lot of people's concerns were, why would you codify this or that, this organization, this agency, because things can change. There's actually already an organization listed in the bill that's actually no longer in operation. And so there were some concerns there. I think there may be efforts to try to clean that up and expand it out to get the parents to have more responsibility in choosing what that looks like. We'll know more soon, hopefully, but that's what Alabama looks like. Luckily, testing in Alabama, they did give parents the option to choose a national norm reference test or the state test like we're seeing in some of these other states. And so hopefully, and the governor's office has been very receptive to feedback from legislators, advocates, parents, and such on these things. So I think things looking up, but the original bill, there was a little bit of concern with that. You know, talking about accountability, that's one thing that in Wyoming, the speaker really had concerns about. And originally, wanted language in there that said that participants shall take a test. It was going to be a state-based test. And we got that backed off a little bit of they may, that private schools may test the students, and that it was national norm reference. In conversations this year, we've actually even got them to back off that a little bit more, I think. We've proposed that instead of putting even testing language in that section, they put it as a qualified expense. So making the fees for those tests a qualified expense. So that still answers the question, if a parent or school wants to test their students, they can, 
And these spots can be used towards that purpose, but it's ultimately up to the parents and the schools how they grade their students. Yeah. And I want to reiterate, it's not that we are against accountability. It's that we think that that should fall on the parent. If a parent is engaged enough to take their child out of their local public school, which is the easiest thing to do, by the way, you enroll, you put them on a bus, you drop them off, it's close by, whatever. If they choose to yank that kid out because they think that they'll have a better educational environment somewhere else, then that's that's the parent's responsibility. That's their ownership. And we don't have a problem with that. Another thing I will say about regulation that I think is true of Louisiana, when you add so much regulation, not only do you stifle kind of the market that will be produced in a customizable educational environment, but you also stifle innovation. I mean, there are all kinds of innovation in educational models, how to teach a kid, what type of environment, what type of tool, you know, all of those things. If you think about it and you add what we use today as quote unquote accountability through testing or whatever, that then stifles innovation. So we're just, you know, we're very careful to say to policymakers, you know, don't think about, again, the parent being the accountability and think about the innovation that you might stifle once you start adding those layers on. Complete freedom in education lets, again, lets the family decide. I know Arkansas has been wrestling with that a little bit, Catherine. They had some things in their bills that it was all good meaning. One of them being kind of price controls with private school tuition. Everybody seems to be afraid that schools will hike up their tuition because they can now, which may or may not happen. That's another thing about bad actors. There's bad actors in anything and everything. Why are we legislating to bad actors and not legislating to innovation and, and families having freedom? So all good intention things, but there's always consequences to some of those things. So I don't want to take much more time. I think we've gone through kind of the gamut of things here. This is, again, kind of our first revamp podcast. So we'll, we'll have more episodes talking about more things and, of course, keep you updated on what's happening around the country as it relates to education freedom. So until next time.